fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Tim. And welcome to a special episode of Imperial News, where we will be covering Ezra Levant's career in word printing, starting with his 2009 book, Shakedown. This is our second episode covering the first half of chapter two. As you may have noticed, Caitlin is not with us today. She has a lot on her plate right now with uh, marking and doing her PhD work. So I asked my friend and patron Tim to join me, where he is hopefully staying safe from the Australian air. How are you, Tim? <laughs> I, I'm good. Like, like all Sydney siders, I am I'm reclused inside my house at the moment, willing to do anything online just to not face the, the atmosphere. <laughs> I saw pictures that are like, it's really bad up there, isn't it? I, there's something oddly beautiful about it when you're driving, you know, middle of the afternoon, you look up and it's just this bright red pink sun. And I'm like, oh, I live on, I live on Tatooine now. It's beautiful. <laughs> if only there were two suns or is it yeah, two exactly. moons? I, can't. <laughs> I think, I think it's a binary star system. Yeah, for Tatooine. Yeah. Just a reminder before we get into it, that you can be cool like Tim and become a patron at patreon.com slash imperial news. If you feel inclined to do so. Also, before we get into this, I've decided to chop chapter two in half, in part because, as you will see when we get to the end of the uh, material in this episode, I was pretty much done <laughs> with dealing with Ezra's shit for, uh, for this. Uh, but also, there was a, a pretty clear cutoff between the first half and the second. The second half, which we will get to next week, is primarily centered around neo-Nazi groups in Canada, which I'm sure you'll miss being a part of uh, Tim. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to to take time on that topic and have it like all to itself so I can go through a bit more of the history that Ezra seems to neglect. But the first part of chapter two is less focused, but the theme generally is Ezra saying that the Human Rights Commission suck but uh, because they aren't courts. They suck because they're not courts is his whole shtick this uh, chapter. But putting aside that they are designed to not be like courts, that it's a specifically <laughs> lower burden to prove. And as a yeah. lawyer, he should know this, but here we yeah. go. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that is going to be an ongoing uh, theme through this segment, as you will see. Uh, because, like, it would be one thing if he offered an argument, but his argument just seems to be, they're not courts. <laughs> that it's like, well, like, expand on that, please. <laughs> It'd be one thing if you would argue that they should be more like courts, but I suppose he's just trying to lean on people's priors. Courts are good. That's where justice is. In any way that these aren't courts, they're bad. Right, exactly. I still think this is an important episode, though, because the errors here are really bad. Like, beyond the, the error we just pointed out right now, some of these are, like, super bad. So bad that I would be embarrassed if I was a mainstream newspaper, like the Globe and Mail, and decided to publish Ezra, uh, because this is... This is egregious. So, Tim, I know you aren't Canadian and probably won't know all the ins and outs of Canadian law, but you are someone who teaches. So I was wondering, like, just keep keep it in mind as we go over this, like how mm -hmm. you would grade this if, say, a student handed you the quality of this work. <laughs> because even like you heard the first chapter, but this is this is brutal. You'll find out in a few minutes. Oh, boy. One That's tantalizing. <laughs> One last thing before we start. Uh, the first chapter was titled, A Beautiful Idea That Failed. The second chapter is titled, What Went Wrong? As it usually goes, this chapter does not really address the question, what went wrong? <laughs> Much like the first chapter, it's just a series of grievances, which at best would answer what is wrong but doesn't address the problem of how we got from chapter one, where things were good, to now chapter two, where things are bad. It is almost as if Ezra had an editor with a sense of good structure, but Ezra just couldn't manage to do it. <laughs> That's a Nazi move. So yeah, we begin with his, his grievances, and as we've already sort of like acknowledged in the preliminaries here, he starts off by writing, this is the first sentence of the chapter, Human rights commissions aren't real courts, though they often dress themselves up in judicial trappings. So right uh. away, he's framing again that they're not courts. And sort of, we already sort of touched on this, but as a refresher, last week we discussed how human rights commissions are quasi-judicial, meaning they have a lower standard of proof, but they still have the ability to make legally binding decisions, which is why this kind of like is weird to me. <laughs> 
Well, because yeah, he's sort of implying that they're illegitimate, but if they can make legally binding decisions, that's that's arguably the important thing about a court. <laughs> exactly. And the reason for this, for having the uh, the lower standard of proof, is that when the commissions were created, human rights lawyers were very aware that most cases of discrimination are hard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, the goal was to make it easier for pe people to seek remedies in cases where there is enough evidence to suggest a problem exists. So they aren't real courts, but they aren't supposed to be. And so they were set up as an administrative body, but they still have, as we've pointed out, a legal framework, right? So it's not like anything goes and it's all willy-nilly. Like, so if the, if the commission says you have to pay a fine, you can't just go, no, I don't want to. You're not a real court. You're not my real dad. <laughs> Which is like, it almost gets into like sovereign citizen territory. It's like, if you just say the magic words, somehow the the courts will magically... Oh yeah, it's, it's that idea where it's like, you know, if you ask a cop if they're a cop, they have to tell you you're a cop. If you point out to a human rights court that they're not really a court, they're like, oh no, you've unbound all of my decisions. Yeah. They also aren't only the only administrative body in Canada structured this way, which is the other thing that he never brings up. So I made this analogy last week between the Labor Board and the Labor Relations Act uh, and compared that to the Human Rights Commissions and the Human Rights Act. So similar to each, any ruling can be appealed to higher courts. So uh, they still exist within the broader Canadian legal framework but they're an administrative body that has appointments. So the people on the labor board are political appointees, just like the people who are the agents of the human rights commissions are political appointees and they're put in there and then they make decisions based on evidence. So you come and you say, uh, my workplace is uh, not letting me strike when I'm legally allowed to. And then you file to the labor board and then they look at all the evidence and they make a ruling. And again, it's an administrative body. It's even described as being quasi-judicial, just like the Human Rights Commissions are described as being quasi-judicial. Now, my guess is Ezra would actually be against those two because he doesn't like unions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my point in raising this is that the Human Rights Commissions are not out of the ordinary, legally speaking, in Canada. So he can't even make the argument that somehow uh, these Human Rights Commissions are not normal and we should just... Uh, get rid of them or ignore them or whatever he's arguing. It's almost like he opposes any kind of quasi-judicial uh, body specifically designed to address power imbalances in the grievances people might have to bring up. <laughs> that, I think you're onto something, Tim. <laughs> can, can, I, can I ask something? Quick? So I, I haven't read this, obviously. I'm not a Canadian. I don't have the background in this. But like, if his whole grievance that these aren't real courts, they're not as legitimate as real courts, is that they don't employ a, a standard, a burden of proof that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Does does that mean that Ezra also thinks that that civil courts are not courts, where you you rely on a balance of probabilities? I was going to bring that up because I, I've had I've had a traffic ticket before, <laughs> and you know, I didn't argue that because. Uh, like I wasn't allowed to take it to like court in the sense of like a criminal court and argue that like somehow the police, I deserve discovery for the police documents to show that they were in the yard when they ticketed me. <laughs> What's uh, your right to face your accusers, Josie? Yeah. Jody, come on. <laughs> uh, but no, he doesn't get into any of that details uh, whatsoever, which is actually going to become relevant here because this is where he describes why he thinks that courts are special. <laughs> Ezra complains that commissions don't have formal rules or procedures, unlike the criminal courts, which he thinks do. And he describes this as having... Uh, uh, the, that the forms and the procedures are good because it took centuries for them to develop. In fact, he goes all the way back to the year 1215, <laughs> and then states that we have an instinct for things like habeas corpus that arrived out of 1215. And he refers to this 800 years of history has inculcated in us an instinct towards what he describes as natural justice. Right. <laughs> and uh, this, this seems weird because you could tell that uh, Ezra is super uncomfortable that human rights commissions are not courts again. But then 
that isn't really an argument to then say uh, <laughs> that something existing for a long time means that it's therefore good or natural even. I mean, I suppose that's the core conservative mindset, isn't it? It's like the human mind cannot improve our social institutions uh, unless it was done agonizingly slowly a really long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and it's like this idea of like somehow there being some sort of instinct like that because of these 800 years of history, we've evolved this sort of like trait that you just can't get rid of. It's human nature now. We have this natural justice. Yeah, if you track the gene frequencies of Canadians, uh, once that selective <laughs> pressure was introduced, they had to evolve their natural justice genes to thrive in this environment. Well, if it goes all the way back to 1215, I think you would have that gene too. <laughs> it's in all Western British colonies. Is um... <laughs> That's why they call it common law. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, natural justice actually has a technical term. And, like, I could see why he's using it. I think what he means is that natural justice is sort of like just fairness in the legal system in generally. So the idea that you have the right to a fair hearing and stuff like this. And so he's mainly yeah. going to imply this idea of natural justice, saying that the courts actually give you a fair hearing, whereas the commissions don't give you a fair hearing. And that's the reason, sort of, why they're not good. Yeah, he's, he's kind of reifying the kind of moral intuition people have on this to say, no, that's being serviced well by the courts, but not by these commissions. Right. He complains that the staff of the commissions are paid through taxes, which somehow means they are politically biased. But also he's worried that the individual who's on the receiving end of a complaint often can't afford legal representation. So first, <laughs> this is a weird complaint because in the court system, judges are paid with taxes. And it's not clear why this would violate natural justice, but like having the commissioners be paid through taxes uh, uh, does violate <laughs> uh, natural justice. It seems like the only viable alternative to private interests. Yeah. Ezra even admits that judges are uh, appointed, so he acknowledges that this is the case, but he insists that they must remain neutral. But then I'm like, what is to stop anyone hired to a commission from not being negatively biased uh, in the same or from not being negatively biased in that same way right they could just be like it's the respect of the human's right commission that like makes me neutral <laughs> or any of the things that judges pretend that that makes them neutral yeah pure respect for the office yeah <laughs> the issue of people on the receiving end of a complaint not being able to afford a lawyer is something worth considering in terms of natural justice i think However, commissions are not courts, so their job is an investig to investigate the complaints, and it's not clear that legal representation is necessary. In fact, a lot of cases, people don't have lawyers when they appear before them. Though I can see why it might be helpful, because they might give you advice on how to appeal and other stuff. But there is an obvious solution here, which is that the commissions can provide legal representation for both parties. But of course, that would mean that we need to properly support them with resources, Something that we mentioned last chapter uh, is that the provinces keep neglecting to do this, which is actually one of the faults with the Human Rights Commission is that we should be funding them more. But again, that's that's not an argument that Ezra wants to make, obviously. Mm. However, even the uh, courts are not fully accessible in terms of legal representation. Uh, so if if Ezra's argument is that we need to get rid of the human rights tribunals and go to the courts then people still won't have access to legal representation. There are like uh, some provincial funding, but it's not going to cover all your legal fees. And Ezra's solution seems to be that if you go to the courts, there's going to be lawyers that are just readily available to give you pro bono work. <laughs> if there's one thing lawyers love, it's not getting paid. <laughs> Which, yeah, exactly. So rather than have the government fund uh, and support people who need legal representation, Ezra would prefer that you just hope for a lawyer that will take you on pro bono. But even if that was the case, that there was all these pro bono lawyers out there, couldn't they just pro bono work for the commissions? Like, yeah. <laughs> so like this they're, they're already so there. Stupid. You can do it now. Exactly. Ezra then focuses on a single example uh, to, to illustrate these kinds of conflict of interest that arise from uh, the Human Rights Commission's not being politically neutral. And so... He discusses this case of an Alberta human rights agent named uh, Diane Colley 
Urquhart, Urquhart, I think I pronounced that right, Diane Colley Urquhart, who was a city councillor in Calgary and who was also a member of a riding association of a political party. So I don't know what it's like in Australia, but we have riding associations for our political parties. And that's basically like, specifically in my riding is London North Centre. And we have like all the parties here, right? But our riding association is basically what votes for our person we want to put up for the election. And it's sort of like your local political party, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we have a comparable structure, but we don't call it that. Yeah. So basically, she was a member of a, of a political party, a riding association, uh, while she was also a city councillor, and she was a member of the Human Rights Commission. And this, Ezra, is like, oh, it's a conflict. And so he describes a scenario, which is a real scenario, that he thinks elicits this conflict. So Ezra describes this human rights case that uh, Diane was involved in, where a Sikh man named Jaspal Rondawa complained he was denied entry to a Calgary bar owned by a guy named Harry Demitratis. And he claims that he was denied entry based on race uh, or religion. This is because Jaspal Rondawa is Sikh, he's wearing a turban, right? So you don't know if you were denied entry because of your race or the fact that you wear a turban, religion, right? Mm. Ezra argues that uh, so this is uh, why he thinks there's a conflict. So he thinks that Diane, being a city councillor, makes things awkward for Harry, the bar owner, because uh, having a role on city council, she's also in charge of the licensing committee. And so his argument is that if Harry, say, uh, I don't know, does something during the Human Rights uh, Commission that she doesn't like, that in the future she could deny giving him a license for his bar for like a liquor license. <gasps> <laughs> and here's like, I'm trying to, uh, I can sort of see how there's like some entanglement, like there's some interesting questions, but the other part of me is like the human rights commission's decisions are open to the public. So anyone who applies for a license, you could just like pull up any case that they could have been involved in. So I'm not sure like how that would be a conflict unless Harry was a dick to her. <laughs> but then it's like, then anyone would be biased to anyone being a dick to them. So I don't know, like, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Do you think there's a conflict here? I mean, it strikes me as the kind of thing where in principle, the conflict is possible, but it, it's not the kind of thing you worry a great deal about because you're like, oh, I could put my thumb on the scales in this way in an incredibly transparent way that everyone would immediately see if it looked out of place. Yeah. I mean, I'd be surprised if there wasn't just some general mechanism of just recusing from this, which is just that, oh, if I had a bad encounter with this person, I'm, I'm not the sole person making this decision, so let someone else do it. No, I think that's right. Like, especially if, if there is a recusal process, you'd be like, I'm just not, because the thing is, even the licensing thing, it's done by a panel. So it's not like she yeah. could just make some sort of executive decision as the sole counselor to be like, I deny you the liquor license. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah they gather up as a huddle and she's like, no, this guy, he was, he was so snarky to me in the, the human rights tribunal. Like, oh. Yeah. One, Let's destroy his business. <laughs> One other thing that is really important to note is that Diane is a conservative. And this <laughs> this is interesting to note because Ezra does not mention this at all. This is one of those Lionel Hutz sort of bits. It's like, oh, why was this uh, detail omitted or stricken from the record? It's devastating to my case. <laughs> well, not, not only is it devastating to his case, because literally the next paragraph, he says this, <laughs> and this is the first quote that I want you to read. Oh boy. I, look, I wish I could do a better Ezra voice to do this justice, but let me, <laughs> let me get into this. <clears throat> An even more disturbing aspect of HRC staffing is the extraordinary prevalence of human rights commissioners who moonlight as radical social activists. I think I'm doing more Alex Jones here, but anyway, he says, <laughs> these opportunists have figured out a way to use the coercive power of the state to entrench their beloved left-wing social engineering schemes into law, all at taxpayers' expense. He thinks that most Human Rights co uh, Commission people are these evil left-wing social justice activists. Radical Me <laughs> social activists. <laughs> Meanwhile, Diane is a conservative. And he doesn't mention <laughs> it. My guess, the, in the directly prior uh, paragraph, he doesn't mention it. Because, as you said, it doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah. 
But also this should be kind of obvious because if agents of the commissions are political appointees, which he keeps pointing out, then they can be staffed by conservative governments like the government of Alberta. (laughs) 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 Which is where this took place. This almost sounds like that thing where it's like, uh, politics is defined as anything but my politics. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a political problem because they're not adhering to the politics I identify with. Yeah. But I also want to talk about the human rights case that he describes, which is this Calgary Bar uh, episode. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because Ezra thinks that it was a bad decision. My guess is he thinks all human rights courts uh, commission cases are bad decisions, but he particularly goes on about how this was a bad decision. I mean, there's no real discrimination anymore. So, I mean, how could they make it? <laughs> right. But I mean, he gets he gets a bit more specific. So this is Ezra's description. Ezra explains that the 2008 ruling was four years after the initial complaint. So the complaint was filed in 2004, and then it took till 2008 for a ruling to come in. And he cites this absurdly, what he describes as an absurdly long delay for why Harry, the bar owner, could not investigate. Ezra then claims that Jaspel, who's the complainant, didn't investigate either since he didn't ask to speak with a manager when he was denied entry into the bar. Ezra says Harry's defense was that he was, he has many Sikh patrons who he had ready to call his witnesses, and that's why he couldn't have been racist. That's basically all the evidence, or not evidence, but this is all Ezra gives to like what occurred at this uh, case. Mm. Like any researcher, I found the Human Rights Commission decision, legal document, or quasi-judicial document. <laughs> and it is clear that during the initial phase of the investigation, Harry was jerking them around. So... During the pre-hearing phase, he intentionally made himself unavailable and then ignored his notice of the hearing. He was then late submitting his response, which the commission noted was in non-compliance with the commission's policies. And then then because of all this, the parties were not able to reach a settlement, and so it went to the tribunal phase of the commission. Yeah, because it's mediation first. Like That's how it always (laughs) is. And then the reason why Jaspel uh, did not speak to a manager, so this is listed in the evidence, was because in his initial complaint, and which is supported by witnesses, he claimed that the bouncer said, and so this is, quote, what the bouncer said, I overheard what you asked the other doorman, and I thought I would save you some time and let you know that you won't be able to come into the nightclub. The owners monitor everybody that comes through the front door, and they will make us ask for you, ask you for three pieces of government-issued pictured ID. Jaspel then responded, I have three pieces of government ID. The bouncer responded by saying, then we will ask you for five and then ten. Jasper then oh. questioned, who would be carrying around five to ten pieces of government ID? He then asked, why are you guys doing this? It's not right. The bouncer replied, I feel bad, but I could lose my job if I let you in. It's Cowtown and Stampede Weekend. Then he goes on to say, the owners want to maintain a certain image and don't want clients to say there are a lot of brown people inside. Uh... So, <laughs> so after J- uh, Jaspel filed the complaint, Jaspel acknowledged many times that he was open to speaking to Harry, but as previously stated, Harry was unwilling to cooperate. In other words, this could have been worked out amicably during the mediation phase if Harry took the time to do it, but he didn't <laughs> do it. So weird. <laughs> why why couldn't they work something out when one of them didn't show up? Yeah. <laughs> so then the agent of the initial complaint laid out that just because the owner claims he hires or allows people in of other races does not mean that on this particular occasion that Jasper was not discriminated against at that time. Citing a bunch of cases where this has happened before. <laughs> Which is like, you can obviously consider that. Like, just because the owner is like, oh, I'm not racist. I let in people of other races all the time. Doesn't mean that this particular bouncer wasn't being racist or the manager on staff that night was not being racist, right? Or even that's not the general policy and that they were deciding to be more discriminatory in one window because of the event. But that's still real discrimination. Exactly. Also, if a staff member is being discriminatory, 
Both parties agreed that it's the owner's responsibility to provide anti-discrimination training, something that Harry did not offer previously. Furthermore, Jasper had witnesses and Harry had none. (laughs) Also, when Harry was made aware of the complaint, which was filed roughly two weeks after the incident, he made absolutely no attempt to document the uh, surveillance footage that he had. He also didn't know who the bouncers were that night, although he could have figured that out like two weeks ago. Uh, Which is like completely in a different frame than how Ezra described this. Because yes, it took four years from the initial filing of the complaint before it went to the final decision. But that doesn't mean that when Harry immediately got the complaint two weeks after it happened that he couldn't get this information. Uh, (laughs) And so this led the commission to conclude that Harry was not taking this seriously. Furthermore, and this is the amazing part, Harry said in his testimony that this isn't about winning or losing. And he's okay with receiving a fine. He accepted responsibility for his staff as owner and also said he thought that Jasper and his witnesses were credible with no reason to think they were lying. (laughs) (laughs) The tribunal then ruled, based on the evidence and testimony, that Jasper was the victim of discrimination and Harry had to pay $5,350 worth of various fees, $3,500 of which went to Jasper, and that his staff and management then had to receive anti-discrimination training. So that was the ruling. Now, now, Jody, you, you just misspoke before when you said that Ezra never mentioned any of this, right? Because <laughs> I mean, that seems to completely invalidate the impression he was trying to give. Completely. <laughs> you would think, I mean, here's the thing is, this one's bad. There's going to be worse examples of this coming forward. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I just like, it's like amazing because you know that going into this, you know that immediately I'm going to pull up the case. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be this bad, but it's oh, it's so embarrassing. So lastly, Ezra then claims that Harry said he would file an appeal, but that he probably wouldn't because, again, Diane being the chief commissioner on the tribunal who ruled in this case would probably judge him more harshly if he files another liquor for another liquor license. Uh. And then that's why Ezra then calls the tribunal ruling legal junk. But again, it's not legal junk because if Harry decides he's not going to pay the fees, he's going to be in legal trouble. Yeah. Also, according to the CBC at the time, Harry did not say he would appeal, but his co-owner did, who was not involved in the trial. Like Harry, obviously, based on his testimony, seemed to not give a shit. (laughs) So, uh, So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, didn't care very much about responding in the first place when it escalated. Didn't care very much about being like, all right, my bad, let's train. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, maybe at the start, he was just, he, like, my sense of it is that Harry had no, like, malicious intent, but just was like, what the fuck is this? And then, like, fucked around on it. And then when it came time to, like, no, this is, like, a serious thing was when he was like, oh, shit. Oh, that happened? Oh, now I don't have any of the surveillance footage. (laughs) So it's like... I mean, there's still problems with uh, the fact that his staff likely engaged in racist behavior. And because he's responsible, he took the hit, you know. Yeah. Good on Harry, <laughs> I guess. Like, maybe he should have uh, fucked around in the first place, but whatever. Uh. Then Ezra makes a bizarre and unsourced claim. And I'm going to have you read it. This is quote number two. Oh, boy. I, I mean, my, his use of the word commandeered here, you have to imagine that he's imagining the tribunal is like a cop taking a civilian's car for a chase that's the framing here yeah yeah we'll get to oh, yeah. it but i don't even think commandeered implies at all to what you're no no it doesn't that's that's what that's what he wants you to be thinking yeah. when this is the case like they just taken over the whole apparatus they're riding it down the street anyway <clears throat> take the bc human rights tribunal the bc hrt in this capacity it once commandeered the entire bc education ministry ordering every school district across the province to enact a particular special needs education program that it thought was necessary. It commanded every school district to follow the BCHRT's particular vision of schooling. Why bother getting elected to cabinet when the real policymaking power lies with the human rights commissions? Yes. (laughs) I love the flair. The flair sells it. So this was really annoying. The, the first thing you can tell is because he doesn't mention any case names or anything. So I'm like, how the hell do I search for this? <laughs> and I was like Google searching everything about like trying to use the word commandeer and that clearly no one else used that language but him. So I'm just like, 
where so finally like digging and digging i found this case and at first i didn't know whether this in fact was the case until like i i went through all the rulings and i finally figured out that it's close enough that i'm pretty sure this is what he was talking about can i can i just say i charitably assumed that even ezra had more details around this quote that you provided but if this is really all he says He's just trying to paint the image to people. They're like, yep, Human Rights Tribunal got an idea in their head one day, and then they decided uh, every every uh, educational institution has to do it now. I'm sure that's not what happened. So I would argue it's like worse than that. This is a stat that what you read is a standalone mm. paragraph. What? There's no preceding or like post-seeding <laughs> uh, information given from this quote. It's literally that quote. And then he moves on to other things. <laughs> and I'm just like, that is a huge claim. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I want someone to like back this up. Uh, and of course, we're going to get into it. If this isn't, because here's the thing is, I, I'm pretty sure, and when I read it to you, you're probably going to go, this sounds like the case he's talking about. But there's no way of like making perfect connections. Because again, he doesn't use any sourced information. And maybe this would have been obvious to people back in 2009 when he wrote his book. Yeah, but maybe. like me 10 years later, like how the fuck am I supposed to figure this out? <laughs> this is the <laughs> whole point of sourcing things. Like if you don't source it, you're just like yelling things into the ether. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, so Ezra may as well built there being like, oh, you know, one time my cousin uh, just commandeered an entire education ministry. And you're like, cool. <laughs> I, I, wait, there's no sources for that. This is just an anecdote. Right. So this is the case I think he's referring to. It's a 2005 decision in the BC Human Rights Tribunal, which was called Moore versus BC Ministry of Education and School District Number 44. So Jeffrey Moore was a dyslexic, dyslexic and required significant special education. The complaint was filed because the district failed to provide resources to Jeffrey for his designation of severe learning disabilities. So it wasn't till about grade two when he was officially diagnosed. And after receiving that diagnosis, they realized that he was not receiving the appropriate training in school. And the district did not have the resources in the public school system to deal with it. So they had to pay extra money to go to basically a private school and paid out of pocket for a private school for years of Jeffrey's life to get a proper education. Because of this, that's when they filed the complaint uh, to the Human Rights Commission. How they ruled, so the complaint was filed because of this, and then the tribunal ruled in Moore's favor. And the reason was that they, the district and the Ministry of Education must ensure that all people with severe learning disabilities must have available funding and facilities. So one of the remedies that was placed upon BC Ministry of Education and District Number 44 was that they had the funding available that they couldn't just say that because you're disabled you have to go pay for shit all on your own basically hmm. right and part of me thinks that the reason why he doesn't want to talk about the specifics of this case is i think jeffrey moore here is a very sympathetic victim right and yeah. his family imagine being a family and learning that like i have this kid with severe learning disabilities and i want them to learn and and have a good life but I have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for private education because my public school system, which is supposed to be for everyone, can't help them. Yeah. It's almost as if whether you have problems or not, uh, public services are supposed to accommodate you. And it's some kind of right that is inherent to being human, some kind of human <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, yeah. If only we had commissions for that. Uh, yeah, I think there was some kind of body that, that could step in when your human rights weren't being honored, but, you know. So this, this case actually has an interesting history, which is that since Ezra's book was written, the BC Ministry of Education appealed the case to the BC Supreme Court. And this was done in 2008. So, again, you're talking about commandeering. So what happened was the... Uh, the Human Rights Tribunal basically forced a policy on the government, which is why he's, which is why I think this is the case he's talking about, because that almost means that the court dictated policy. So unlike the, what Ezra described with them being commandeered, clearly the Ministry of Education had the 
ability to appeal it <laughs> to a higher court. To be heard in a literal court. Yes. And they did this in 2008. So this was uh, appealed to the BC Supreme Court in 2008. This means Ezra would have had known that they actually were appealing it if he even did the due diligence to double check that this was happening. And again, they're appealing it to what you just said, one of those real courts that he loves so much. So there was a ruling and it was made in 2010. So this is after the book was published and it was made in favor of BC Ministry of Education. And the BC Supreme huh? Court ruled that Moore was not the victim of discrimination because if you compare his treatment to other disabled people, he was treated the same as them. <laughs> Which, Hold on. <laughs> so he's like, because in that district, anyone who's disabled is going to have to pay out of pocket for the, the private fees, that therefore it's not discrimination that, uh, uh, that Jeffrey had to pay them as well. They got out of it with that classic loophole. What if we are cruel to all disprivileged children? But it still didn't end there because the Moore family, since Jeffrey had passed away, so now the Moore family continued it. Uh, they appealed the BC Supreme Court to the Supreme Court of Canada, where finally oh the court ruled in favor of Moore. Good. <laughs> and this was done in 2012. And they cited that the issue was access to education generally and not access to special needs education. So it therefore was, in fact, discrimination. And the ruling stands. And this was finalized in 2012. Man, this is good news for Ezra because that's so much court yeah. to throw on top of this. <laughs> that's the maximum amount of justice if it goes all the way to the top. Right. So the point of going through this is to show that Ezra's complaint that these tribunals are somehow outside regular procedures and aren't real courts is complete and utter bullshit. The decisions are not final, they can be appealed, and even the Supreme Court of Canada can rule on the side of the human rights commissions, which are often right. <laughs> but I also love the commandeering metaphor here, because he's implying that, like, yeah, the human rights tribunal just got an idea in their head as to what special needs education should look like, and then they, like, wrote the rules as opposed to being like, uh, you're supposed to provide children with an education and you're not meeting that standard. So we're, we're, we're saying you have to do that. Like We're making it clear how you have to do that. It, <laughs> is that really commandeering? Is, is that being like, oh, enforcing the standards that an educational institution is supposed to have already? That's not, that's not the same as being like, civilian, I need your car for this chase. Right. Then Ezra wants to start getting into credentials of these human rights commissioners. So he starts listing agents of the Human Rights Commissions, some of them to prove that they're radicals, right? So he highlights this one woman named Heather McNaughton, and she, he lists, this is like a reason why she's a radical, is that she was initially appointed to the Ontario Human Rights Commission by Bob Ray when he was Premier of Ontario. And if you don't know, Bob Ray was a member of the NDP at the time. Uh, and ah. he, he was the first, like... NDP premier, first and only NDP premier of Ontario, and uh, the conservatives have never let it go since. <laughs> so I would have been in grade one around that time when he was premier. Uh, was it grade one? Anyways, elementary school. I don't remember any of it, but he was premier. And since then, Bob Ray has become a neoliberal. So he used to be on the left, and now he became a member of a federal government with the Liberal Party. And so I don't know, be, being appointed by Bob Ray doesn't necessarily make you a radical. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it. No, and then there's this individual named Raja Kuri, and he was president of the Canadian Arab Federation, so you can guess why Ezra doesn't like him. And <laughs> Ezra, <laughs> Ezra claims that the Canadian Arab Federation uh, believes in 9-11 conspiracies, and is anti-Semitic. And somehow this is a problem with Curry, even though he might not believe 9-11 conspiracies or be anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the classic guilt by association. Right. He also points out that Curry wrote an op-ed op in the Globe and Mail, and he further claims that in this op-ed, Curry wrote, that the, Can wrote that, the Can that Canadians' decision to outline Hamas was shameful. He then goes and complains about some other agents, who he describes as not even being qualified. So he goes through, there's this woman named Joan Hay, and he's like, she's not qualified because she's only worked at Aboriginal community centers. And then he goes to this other person who I'm going to butcher their name, Mizilakazi Nidaluvu, who is from Zimbabwe. 
<laughs> so here's the thing is you might be wondering on that last point if I'm missing something, but literally Ezra quotes Nilovo's uh, description of growing up in Zimbabwe as somehow evidence that he isn't qualified. <laughs> and so here's like to be charitable to Ezra he then follows up and says that he has a university degree in political science but like I mean that, that might count for something that exactly that might count for something but Ezra like, so he's complaining that the, he doesn't understand how any of these individuals are uh, qualified but the purpose of the commission was to hire people with human rights experience and someone who worked at an Aboriginal community center their whole life might actually have the experience necessary to adjudicate like claims of uh, discrimination against Aboriginal communities. Wait, now, Jody, as, speaking as an Australian here, I, I don't assume it's the same in Canada as it is over here, but are you, are you saying that Aboriginal Canadians face human rights problems? <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> are you, you're not allowed to say it in your censorious Australian uh, dictatorship? Oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm sure I'm already on the watch list. So I'm pre- well. If I'm not either, I'm, I mean Trudeau's a little soft, but <laughs> if the conservatives ever get power again, oh no. Which speaking <laughs> of which, so as for the claims against this Curry person, I can't find any evidence that the Canadian Arab Federation believed in 9/11 conspiracies. They might exist out there. I don't know, but I'm not going to search endlessly, waiting for like the one Canadian Canadian Arab Federation member to be like. Jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. <laughs> so I didn't find it. As for the Hamas thing, the Canadian Arab Federation acknowledges that Hamas and Hezbollah were elected governments and therefore represent the voices of the Palestinian electorate and shouldn't be banned by Canada. That is what they claim, which is a softer claim, but you still might mm. think that's a problem. But as for Kuri's op-ed in the Globe and Mail, Here's what Ezra says in Shakedown. So I'm going to quote Ezra. Curry wrote a stunning editorial column in the Globe and Mail describing Canada's decision to outline the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas as shameful. And the only quotes that Ezra does here are around the word shameful, meaning that shameful must be in the article, but (laughs) everything else that Ezra says is paraphrasing. So the article is about a double standard. And what is shameful, according to Curry, is not that Hamas is outlawed, but that Israel has not been banned for similar behaviors. Right? So it's a double standard. And in fact, this is what Curry actually writes in his op-ed. So this is quote three. I'm going to get you to read it. So you can't do the Ezra voice here, but... No, no, no. But again, there's the indirect speech of this. So, I am no fan of Hamas. That it calls for Israel's destruction is unacceptable. That it justifies the use of suicide bombers in resisting the the occupation does not make it any less a crime. Its calls for the establishment of an Islamic state in Palestine will be rejected by the secular majority in Palestinian society. But this is not really about Hamas. It is about demonizing Palestinian leadership so it can be claimed that Israel has no partner for peace. It is about avoiding discussing an end to the occupation and focusing instead on its symptoms. It is about allowing Israel to avoid peace negotiations, to proceed with unilateral moves and to impose its own conditions on Palestinians. Right. (laughs) So I I was going to say, when I looked at this quote, I was like, this does not sound like Ezra at all. (laughs) But not only that. This sounds like someone making a reasonable point. Right, it's very reasonable. And it's not at all saying that Canada's decision to outline the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas is shameful, right? What he's saying is that the double standard is shameful. Like, sure, yeah. Hamas is terrible, but you, you can't just, like, willy-nilly choose who's terrible here. Like, both of the parties are elected, and we both have to work with them. Both of them are committing some class of atrocities. Both of them are also elected. Like, we're splitting hairs here. Yeah. Well, here's the thing is, so this guy has a very nuanced approach on both of these things. And Ezra goes on about, like, would you want him to adjudicate cases where Jews are uh, being accused of Islamophobia? Yes. Yeah, because this guy is completely reasonable. I want a nuanced, thoughtful person doing that. (laughs) So as you can tell, like, there's reasons why you want these people on the committee. But Ezra's just trying to make them out as, like, complete radicals. Ezra then goes on a bit of a tangent regarding uh, the Mark Stein case, which again is uh, his article on Islam published in McLean's magazine. And part of uh, what Ezra is complaining about 
is that the standard rules of natural justice were not being uh, applied to his case. Now, again, whatever the hell that means. The example that he gives is uh, that McLean's lawyers were objecting, but they were ignored. And Ezra describes that because there was no laws being followed. I mean, like, this is like the ongoing thing is that they're not real courts, right? So if they're not real courts, what are you objecting to? Like, there's no legal procedure to object to. So it'd be like if, like, say your doctor is trying to understand how you got sick and is asking you questions and you're like, I object. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like they were being ignored because it's like, what are you objecting to? Like, it's an investigation. (laughs) Yeah, how can you overrule or sustain something when there's there's no matter that's being adjudicated there? There's no, you know, standards of evidence. It's like you're you're just doing the equivalent of a mediation. No, that's exactly exactly what it is. It's so stupid. Ezra then discusses, to to give you more examples of the human rights tribunals uh, not being courts, Ezra discusses this in individual named Mark Lemire. And one thing we need to note right now is that Ezra refers to him as an, quote, alleged white supremacist but then focuses on uh, this other issue of Lemire having access to commission documents. And so we'll, we'll go into plenty of detail about Mark in the second part about the Nazis in Canada, and we'll see how accurate this claim to alleged white supremacy is. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to that. But the complaints about the documents are also kind of silly. Uh, I can't find any information for one that he actually was denied any access, but even if he was, the Human Rights Commission, again, is not a court. So they take in a bunch of evidence and make a ruling. It isn't a legal proceeding where you go through a process of discovery. So the only thing I can see that might be what Ezra is talking about is he wanted access to some information of the Canadian Islamic Congress, marked it, and uh, they weren't letting him have access to those documents because he had no reason to have access to them. You know, and I guess like his reasoning is I need to make a defense, but it's not about making a defense. It's about like yeah, this is an investigative practice, right? This isn't like this is adversarial. I need discovery so I can build a case against what they're going to say. This is fact finding, right? So again, Ezra makes a similar complaint of McLean's magazine in the Stein case not having access to documents, and then calls the commission a trial, which it isn't. <laughs> and then says the BC Human Rights Tribunal dismissed the complaint because McLean's was too powerful. So the only reason the human rights did not rule in favor of the complainant and dismissed it was because if they ruled against McLean's, everyone would like McLean's would publish all this stuff and right, <laughs> then the human rights tribunals will fail. Which is like the funny thing uh-huh. is it still got dismissed. And this book is still being written, and McLean's was still criticizing the human rights court. So, like, I'm not sure how this conspiracy theory is supposed to work. Yeah, it seems like the genie's out of the bottle on this. Yeah. The other thing is, then Ezra just claims, without evidence, that the BC Human Rights Tribunal has fined smaller publications in similar offenses. Oh, cool. That's a really easy thing to say without, without citations. No, exactly. And how am I supposed to search for that? Like... That <laughs> everyone ever find how big a publication was it? How much compromise did they have? Montgomery Sawdust News for, for all your psalm, <laughs> like and find like them filing a complaint against I don't know, like how am I going to find it? They've, they've they've sanctioned fifteen high school newspapers. <laughs> and then finally, he goes uh, the the in the McLean's case, the decision was forty seven pages long. And he describes this as legal acrobatics, just so they can justify the dismissal. And I'm like, why does the length of the docu- like the decision matter? Like, if it was 46 pages, it would have been okay? <laughs> Ezra then said that the BC Human Rights Trial ruled that Stein's essays had factual inaccuracies, and then says, but they provided no evidence that this is the case. That's wrong, because in reality... El Mazari had expert witnesses that went in to testify to the factual inaccuracies in Mark Stein's article. And McLean did not provide any witnesses to like give a differing opinion on the writings. All the BC Human Rights Tribunal says is they accept the evidence of the experts that there exists factual inaccuracies. 
but that even though the article is inaccurate, doesn't mean that it reaches the level of hate speech as found in Section 13 of the Human Rights Act, which was the uh, hate speech part of the Human Rights Act. So, for mm. example, as one of these inaccuracies is, and we'll cover way more when uh, we get more detailed into this, the Mark Stein case, but the experts claim that Stein, in his article, uses the word jihad inaccurately. So Stein in the article says that it means terrorism or basically terrorism, when really, uh, when really jihad just means to strive for something and can be used yeah, in any yeah. other context than just terrorism. But you could see like how the court is thinking, or not that court, see now I'm falling for it, now how the commission is thinking here, which is that they're saying... That's how Ezra gets you. Yeah. <laughs> right, so like if you're the commission, this is what you're thinking. Okay, that's an in inaccurate statement. But is that, that inaccurate statement itself going to incite others to hate? It's, it's like asking someone to find the boundary between just incompetence and malice. Right, exactly. Ezra then complains that McLean's didn't really win because they paid for all these lawyers and cites it to be around half a million dollars. And this is ironic because the case would have likely been dismissed regardless of whether they had lawyers to advise them because in the end, McLean's basically offered no evidence or defense and the case was still dismissed. <laughs> so it's like, okay. And hey, maybe the lawyers are good and they told them to just do nothing. I don't know. Maybe they should have gotten all those pro bono lawyers. Yeah, exactly. Lining up around the block. Ezra then complains that people on the receiving end of HR complaints can't retaliate with lawsuits against their complainants. And there's an obvious good reason for this, which is that, like, imagine someone filing a human rights case against their boss only to have their boss file a frivolous lawsuit against them that now they have to pay out of pocket for lawyers to defend themselves. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, of course, they would put a stipulation like that in. Yeah, it's almost as if like the structure itself exists to remediate the obvious power imbalance in the first place. And Ezra somewhat acknowledges that. He goes, yeah, it, it initially was done for a good purpose. But now like the tribunals and the commissions are out of control. So now it like doesn't serve its purpose. Uh, it was a beautiful dream that yeah, failed. It failed. Ezra's next complaint is that the Human Rights Commissions have the ability to search workplaces and homes without warrants. Oh, boy. And he cites specifically Section 22 of the Newfoundland Human Rights Code as evidence. Then says that HRCs have been granted more power than Canadian police, saying they are more like the police in Iran. <laughs> in particular, though, he does not say so. He is citing Section 22, Subsection 1 of the Newfoundland Human Rights Code. Newfoundland now has the Human Rights Act rather than the Human Rights Code, but you can, you know, search for the older document online, and I found it. Let's have you just read. So this is Section 22, Subsection 1. All right. Now, th this is a bit legalese, so uh, apologies for this long sentence with multiple clauses in the middle, everyone listening. <clears throat> The executive director and a person appointed or designated by the executive director may, at all reasonable times, so long as it is reasonably necessary to determine compliance with this act, enter a building, factory, workshop, or other premises or place in the province, A, to inspect, audit, and examine books of account, records, or documents, or B, to inspect and view a work, material, machinery, or appliance, or article found there, and the persons uh, occupying or in charge of that building, factory, workshop, premises, or place shall C, answer all questions concerning those matters put to them, and D, produce for inspection the books of account, records, documents, material, machinery, appliance, or article requested by the executive director or a person appointed or designated by the executive director. All one sentence, and yeah, Ezra's right. This basically makes them a specter from uh, Mass Effect. You're above the law. You, can, you have a license to kill. Yeah. That's what we're doing with this, right? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, like, as it stands... The laws of man do not apply to you. As it stands, that sounds like they have access to all these workplaces, right? So then the question is, yeah. are HRCs really allowed to just enter places without warrants? And are HRCs given the same powers as the police forces in Iran? So the first thing I thought when reading this section was, if this were true, you would think we would have heard about this. Like, <laughs> like there would be cases that Ezra could highlight indicating that these abuses have occurred. 
But of course, Ezra, like always, doesn't give any examples of this happening. Which then occurred to me that it could mean it is one of those laws that are just sitting there. Bad in principle, but was never used and thus never challenged, so it just remains there. But the me- like the minute that it gets used, it'll be challenged and gotten rid of, right? Just, just waiting, waiting for the right fascist to show up and be like, aha, the powers yeah. I need. <laughs> However, it is much worse than that. So, Tim, <laughs> could you please read section 22, subsection 2 of the Newfoundland Human Rights Code? Okay, it's another big sentence here, but bear with me. Where the executive director or a person appointed or designated by the executive director believes on reasonable grounds that a person has contravened this act or the regulations, the executive director or a person appointed or designated by the executive director may, with a warrant issued under subsection 3, at a reasonable time, enter the building, factory, workplace, premises, or any place and may investigate, inquire into, and examine the affairs of the person in respect of whom the investigation is being made and into books of account records or documents in relation to that person. <clears throat> now, I didn't quote subsection three, but subsection three is basically an explanation of going to a, a court and getting to an get official warrant. <laughs> yeah. But he just had to keep reading. He spends seven paragraphs on this. Like... <laughs> Seven paragraphs claiming that, like, our whole system of government is collapsing because of these human rights tribunals. <laughs> All because he didn't read the second subsection. Like, you can imagine truncating this. Like, what if it was one sentence? Uh, you know, th- these uh, appointed persons can go into any building, comma, so long as they have a warrant. And then he just quotes the part before the comma. So this is, that's, this is the end. I'm done. And, like, after this point, I was just like, fuck this guy. <laughs> But, like, I'm part of me is like, do you think it was ill-intended? Like, do you think he actually read Section 2 and then was like, fuck it, I'm just going to leave it out? Or do you think he's just incompetent, read Section 1, and then just like, oh, my God, tyranny in our midst. But then it's like, how did he know about Section 1? Like, if, if I were to be as charitable as possible, and like, I mean, I'm getting in the mindset of, like, a student who's writing a paper on this. I bet that Ezra was reading it in kind of chronological order, read the first section got really worked up about it and the implications of it started forming an argument in his head about it got very committed read the section that then immediately invalidates that and is like ah, i really like that first narrative (laughs) (laughs) oh my god so i was gonna ask you what kind of what kind of grade would you give him this (laughs) like like if one of my students did that on a fucking paper well he being ezra he's coming as a mature age student he's bettering himself He's not doing well, though. No. Dude, listen. You fucking passed the test, okay? <sighs> but barely. Oh you know what you got. Okay. What I get? F plus. And, like, the thing that, like, really annoys me is, like, excerpts of this book were published in major, major Canadian newspapers and publications. It was voted best political book of the past 10 years in 2011 by an online poll. Uh... <sighs> Yet I would fail a student who did this. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not like, I mean, some of the other examples are like, I can, I can see, for example, in the bar scenario of him getting certain facts, like having a slant based on the facts that were presented and just excluding other facts because you're like, they're not relevant. I only like the one facts that I like. Yeah, he, he would see himself as just trimming the fat, getting you right to the ideological core of this. But what? But this one, this is the opposite of the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and he spends the most time on it. Like, that's the other thing. All the other things, they're just like, he mentions a few stuff in a, in a paragraph and then moves on. This is like, he goes on for like, like the Nazi stuff is longer. This is like the rest half of the chapter. But this part was like, he was like, I've got like a huge argument here. The other thing to note is, like, you'll notice the same issue we had with chapter one, which is, like, it really is scattershot. Like, there is no structure to this. He's just like, here's a thing I don't like. Here's another thing I don't like. Like, weirdly enough, it reads like a transcript of his podcast. He's just pivoting (laughs) one way. Like, like, the most important thing is how riled up he thinks the audience is, not does this coherently unfold as a thesis. Yeah. That's a Nazi move. So... How did you feel being on the podcast? It, it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot to react to when Ezra's doing his thing. 
Well, thank you for coming on. It was my pleasure. And for those listening, if you enjoyed what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at imperial news with a Z. I just created an Instagram account so you can check that out. I think our username is news imperial because all the other iterations of imperial news were taken. We have, a, <laughs> we have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. Tim's in the Discord, so you can chat with Tim if you want. You can hear about how I had to buy a tiny mask for my baby so he doesn't <laughs> choke the smoke here. Yes. It was all the bush. Keep, keep the children safe from the smoke. You can find the link to the Discord on our Twitter. Both the uh, Discord and Facebook groups are starting to get populated, so they're a bit more chatty, which is nice. But the more the merrier. So if you want to come on and chat politics with us, come on. And uh, lastly, you can email us any questions at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. And I will get to some of them at the end of each show. I got a correction today. So we're going to address that uh, on the next main episode show because it was a main episode correction. Hold the tyrannical Jody accountable. Yes. (laughs) Thanks again, Tim, for being on. And for the rest of you, join us next week when we delve into Chapter 2, Part 2, about Nazis. I can't wait to hear about Nazis. Everyone, I was going to say everyone loves Nazis, but they don't. Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields.